Hi, I'm Lisa Davis, and if you enjoy my podcast, Talk Healthy Today, then I know you're going to enjoy my brand new podcast with the wonderful Sunny Days, whom you've heard on the program. And if you haven't, please check out the interviews that we've done here on Talk Healthy Today. It is called Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. There are going to be honest, unfiltered conversations. We're going to be talking about what's happening right now with race in this country, how important it is for us to be open, how to be allies, what it takes to be an ally, how racism and feelings of bias are in our culture and how they affect each and every one of us. It is so important. We need to change things. So please join me, join Sunny, join us on Active Allyship. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Thanks. Enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Talk Healthy Today. I got my master's in public health back in 1997. I remember remember one of my professors talking about loneliness and the epidemic of loneliness and how important community is and how this has such a huge impact on your health. That has always stuck with me. And I have to say, during this COVID time, I realize it now more than ever. And I'm struggling. It's really, really hard. And I see that with my teenage daughter and with friends of mine. And yes, we FaceTime. And the reason I'm talking about this is because our connections with others, uh, the volunteer work that we do, these things that the conscientiousness that we have, these things are going to help our overall health. And we have a fantastic guest, Marta Zaraska. Her book is Growing Young, How Friendship, Optimism, and Kindness Can Help You Live to 100. Marta, so thrilled to have you on the program. Thank you so much for inviting me, Lisa. Yes, you uh, are a science journalist. What is that for people who are not familiar with that? (laughs) It's a journalist who writes about science, basically. So my job, I often say, involves uh, translating scientific papers, academic research work into something that people can easily understand. So, you know, digging through hundreds and hundreds of uh, studies and uh, finding the interesting parts and writing it in a simple way so people can enjoy reading and understand what it's all about without having to suffer through lots of uh, scientific language and (laughs) numbers and so on and so on. Well, I can say you did a hell of a job because I understand that you read through 600 research papers to put this, at least, holy cow. Okay. So how do you, how do you have that stamina? I mean, you get, you get used to it is my job. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes, sometimes it's hard, but you know, there, there, there are also fun parts of this job as well. You know, I had, I had lots of interesting adventures as well. So it was not only reading difficult papers for it. It was also fun as well. Oh, that's great. And when did you know that you wanted to work in science journalism? I mean, I've been doing it for such a long time now. It's hard to really, you know, go back to the rules. But I've been a journalist for over 20 years. So uh, that's my basically whole professional life. And uh, that's just came naturally. And I'm married to a scientist as well. So it's oh, nice. uh, kind of we are both doing the very, very similar things. So um, it's it's natural. Well, in your book, Growing Young, How Friendship, Optimism, and Kindness Can Help You Live to 100, it's such an incredible book. You're looking at what are called the soft drivers of health. And that's why I brought up in the beginning 
that when my professor talked about loneliness, I'm sitting, you know, I'm thinking about smoking, I'm thinking about, you know, trans fats and no exercise. And of course, so those things are important. But talk to us about why these soft drivers of health and tell us what they are, are so incredibly key to overall health and longevity. Yeah, so th- these are things like exactly being socially connected, so the opposite of loneliness, uh, having a romantic partner, being a kind, engaged, empathetic person, having a strong community around you, volunteering, also your personality, whether you're optimistic or neurotic or uh, if, whether you're a conscientious, for example. So all these things really matter for health. And often when I talk to people about it, they their first gut, kind of gut reaction is that there it's some kind of new agey thing, you know, that it's uh, uh, kind of magical thinking. But the truth is, it's extremely biological. It's very deeply rooted into our physiology. And the reason for that is that we have evolved to be a social species, right? We are social apes, just like chimpanzees are, right? They, they are, mm-hmm. they are made to be living with a tribe and our bodies react in a certain way when we are surrounded by others. We evolve to feel safe and calm. And uh, when we are uh, close to our little community, and of course our community means a very different thing right now than it meant when we were still living on a savanna, but it's we, the, the same biological process, the same hormones, the same uh, nerves and brain parts are still uh, involved. Yeah, I love in the book how you talk about oxytocin, endorphins, cortisol, adrenaline, even gut microbes. So talk to us about that and what happens when we're with the ones we love. Yeah, so we exactly we have all these so-called social hormones, for example, right? You mentioned mm-hmm. oxytocin. We often often talked about it as a the love hormone, right? Uh, so oxytocin, on one hand, this is something that gets released when you're surrounded by people you love when you are holding hands with your loved ones or you're looking deeply into their eyes or you're hugging a friend for example and uh an oxytocin makes you feel all warm and fuzzy on one hand but on the other hand also has very direct uh, physiological effects so for example uh it's linked to lowering inflammation or to uh bone bone growth for example wow yeah and the same the same thing happens you know with uh, serotonin and uh, and the other hormones so they have uh they have very biological effects on one hand so serotonin uh can lower the risk of high blood pressure it can improve your vascular tone it's involved in temperature regulation bodily temperature regulation for example right so so and on the other hand it's also a social hormone it makes us feel more bonded to others Uh, endorphins are natural painkillers but they also get released when you are for example singing in a choir or doing some or dancing with other people so uh it's they're both double-edged kind of effects here on one hand very you know psychological social emotional on the other hand very very physiological Yeah, that's what's so interesting about it. And I know I read years ago that if you look into your dog's eyes, so I'm regularly like staring into both of my dog's eyes. And it says it not only raises our oxytocin, but it raises theirs too. Yeah, so it's good for everyone, right? It makes you feel very pleasant and relaxed. And actually for relaxation, it's it's one of the best way to to calm yourself, to to pet your dog. And looking into their eyes exactly raises your oxytocin with all the potential health benefits to you and the dog. 
Yeah, it makes so much sense. You know, one of the things that I thought was interesting as well was people talk about the Mediterranean diet. As a matter of fact, my husband's been on this big kick and he'll be like, hon, look what I'm eating. It's so Mediterranean, blah, 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 blah. But then we're watching Queer Eye while we're eating. And I'm like, okay, I love Queer Eye. Don't get me wrong. Those guys are great. But we really should just be, and we don't do it every night. I mean, a lot of nights we do sit and have dinner and talk. Yeah, so actually one of the reasons why I was, the only reason actually why I was almost late for this interview today was that I was doing the Mediterranean diet, the French style, because I was out with friends and we were having dinner and it was running very late and took many, many hours. And and, uh, this is exactly what I'm talking about. I live in France and and here, you know, eating is all about being social. So French love eating and they love doing it with others and they take their time. So my daughter, she's only seven, but at school, they take one hour and a half each and every day in a school cafeteria to eat to eat their lunch, you know, and they have the entree, they have the main dish, they have the cheese plate, they have the dessert, and they take their time. And it's everywhere like that, right? Everything is about eating and it's always eating with others. So for example, you know, if you want numbers among the French, 61% of people in their 30s and 40s eat dinner with their family at the table every single night, 61%. Whereas in in US, the number is 24%. And in the American study, it wasn't even specified whether they're eating at a table or maybe exactly like you said, watching TV together, which of course is not the same quality. So so really here, and the same is in Italy and Spain. You know, if you travel around those countries, you can see that people really, really value eating with others. And when we talk about Mediterranean diet, we always talk about, you know, the the nutrients, right? We talk about the foods, the, the olive oil, the wine, the tomatoes and so so on and so on. (laughs) And we really forget completely that it's also about the way that these foods are eaten, that they are not eaten in a car by yourself. They're eating with other people, taking your time slowly, enjoying the conversation and really being together, right? Oh, yeah, completely. And that's something that we're definitely lacking here. Okay, my mind is just boggled about the long lunch because I'm so in favor of it. You know, my daughter probably at school, they get like 15 minutes for lunch or some insane thing where half the time she comes home and she's eaten like the tiniest bit of her lunch. And I'm like, hon, why didn't you eat your lunch? She's like, mom, we just don't have enough time. This, like I said, this social isolation has been so, I see how hard it's hit my daughter, even if she can FaceTime with friends. It's, It's like that. And thank God we have each other to hug, but there's something about hugging your friends and having that looking in their eyes and every, you know, and I'm a hundred percent behind masks. I make videos about Mm. it, making fun of people who don't wear them. So it's not about that. It's just more saying this is any advice during this tough time, because it's very, um, it's, it's, it's hard. I mean, loneliness is a real health wrecker. You know, it's one of the worst things that can happen to you health-wise, being lonely and socially isolated. You know, people who are lonely, they have shorter telomeres, for example, you know, so those protective cups at the ends of your chromosomes that are involved in aging. They have even different expressions of genes that are involved in progression of cancer. Uh, They are three times more likely to die than are people who are not socially, die prematurely. So, you know, there are are so many things that go wrong when when we are isolated. Of course, I'm also all for, you know, protecting ourselves and not spreading the virus. But if, for example, you, you just like me, you know, we, we live with other people already. So you have your family. If you, if, if you have someone you are already isolated with, then hug them, you know, don't forget about it because we can take it for granted too. You know, even when you are in the same apartment or house and other people, you can still forget to, uh, to look them into their eyes when you are talking, spend the time, the quality time, right? Hug them and, uh, hold hands with your loved one and, uh, just do those things. Don't forget it. And also when, when, uh, getting in touch with other people online, 
it's actually much better to call than to text, for example. There is actual research on that, that when we then when we call and we hear the other person's voice, we get the boost of this oxytocin hormone, so the laugh hormone, whereas we don't get the same thing at all when we are texting. And uh, we often choose texting these days for simplicity, but it doesn't give the same connection because it's both about this emotional connection because oxytocin help you, helps you feel bonded and also the physiological effects. So it's definitely much better to always choose calling either video or even simply picking the old school landline and and calling people. Oh, that is so good to know because I am a big texter, but I have been doing more phone calls and we FaceTime with my father-in-law every day. He's 87. I've been doing his grocery shopping since mid-March and he's been staying home, but we've started in the last few weeks. He'll come over, we'll sit outside, we'll social distance, we'll wear our masks because I could see it wearing on him. And I'm really concerned about people who live alone and especially older people. I mean, this is actually very, very difficult and hard because it's really it's really tough to find solutions, right? And uh, we know that uh, this is so bad for their, for their health and yet uh, how do we go around it? So I've seen some initiatives uh, happening in US as well. For example, uh, that people who have already recovered from coronavirus are volunteering. I don't remember in which state it was, but I've read about it. They're volunteering to visit elderly, for example, right? So there are initiatives starting like that. And I think these are amazing. Oh, that's great. Exactly. They can. These are the people who can most safely you know, help in that way. So maybe if you are a recovered coronavirus patient, uh, then you, you can help volunteer like that, right? Visits the, the people. Um, I mean, we are not 100% certain that you cannot infect, but I guess the risks are much, much lower, right? Yeah. Oh, that's, oh, I'll have to look into that. That's great. I'm just so thankful that he can now come over because the first few months, number one, we're in the Northeast. It was flipping cold <laughs> to sit outside. <laughs> now it's so humid. I'm like, uh, I go outside for two minutes and I'm like covered in mosquito bites. So we're going to have to figure something out, but at least we FaceTime every day, even if it's just for a few minutes. One of the things that I loved in the book too, is you have this um, word, let me see if I'm saying it right. Uh, fubbing? It's snubbing and phone. Tell us about this. Fubbing, yes, that's unfortunately. And actually women are more more likely to be guilty of that for some reason. And this is basically when, you know, when you are sitting with another person having a conversation and the other person starts looking at their phone instead of concentrating on the conversation and paying attention. And this is fubbing. So exactly phone and snubbing, ignoring someone else to pay attention to your phone and uh, <laughs> happens all the time. And uh, there is also so much research now on how bad it is for our relationships um, because even simply putting a phone on a table uh, when we are having a chat with another person, it already spoils the quality of the relationship. So the other person afterwards when asked, you know, how did you feel about your connection or, or the kind of time you had, they will rate it worse just because the phone was there, even if you didn't look at it. And if you do look at, look at it, it's going to be even worse. So so really has a tremendous impact on how we judge, how the relationship, our connection, and, uh, and of course, if our relationship's quality suffered, and also all these kind of physiological processes also suffer. I don't know if this is, if I heard this correctly, but I thought that someone had done a study or something about Zoom and that people find it exhausting. I mean, the problem with Zoom is also, and generally the video conferencing and stuff, is that it's very unnatural for our bodies. You know, we are very 
physical creatures, we have to pay attention to the body language, you know, to the ex- face ex- facial expressions, and and we are used to doing it in 3D, and it's very weird for our brains and for our eyes to be trying to read the body language from the flat screen all the time. It's exhausting, basically. It's, it requires extra uh, extra brain power, I guess. And you know, we we even we are maybe not not uh, our noses are not strong as strong as the, the, those of dogs, but everything matters for us. Even our noses, the, the smells, the, the the sounds are different. It's it's very different experience for us, and we are just not evolved to deal with it. And this is why it's hard and tiring. This actually brings me to facial feedback, and you talk about why Botox is bad for longevity, and that you'll never do it. I did it once um, on my crow's feet, and the thing is, I just it just didn't look right. And it's funny because I when I before COVID, when I had my last facial, the woman was like, oh, we offer we also offer Botox and filler. And blah, blah. I go, you know what? My crow's feet, they don't really bother me. And she kind of <laughs> she she was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. So the problem is, you know, because, you know, your facial expressions uh, can trigger or change your emotions. So it's a very if you want to check it yourself, a very simple test is try smiling when you are not feeling very happy but try just forcing yourself to smile and after a while actually you will feel better and the opposite is also true if you really start making angry faces after a few minutes you will start feeling more angry this is basically how it works our emotions are connected to the muscles and nerves in our in our faces so it's called so facial feedback and uh, studies show that this process malfunctions in people who have botox injections so this connection between the emotions uh, and face right so when you have botox you're reading emotions and expressing emotions and feeling emotions actually gets disturbed and when we cannot process emotions correctly we also don't connect with other people the same way Actually, people who have Parkinson's disease have problem with that as well because they have facial rigidity very often. And uh, because of that, they cannot connect emotionally with other people in the same way. So now if you, you know, translated to Botox, uh, it's kind of worrisome that we'll be choosing ourselves to do it, uh, the same thing voluntarily to potentially have problems uh, with emotions and with connecting emotionally with other people. Oh, okay. Speaking with connecting with other people, you talk about fear of commitment and why that's negative. Talk to us about that. Yeah, so this is basically uh, about romantic relationships and marriage. Uh, so if you were to do only one single thing for your health, uh, that would be finding a romantic partner and investing a lot of effort so that the relationship is of high quality. Then the reason for that is that a happy romantic relationship can lower your risk of mortality by an astounding 49%. And to compare it, a diet or exercise can lower your mortality risk by 20, 30% more or less. So this is much, much more that you can get out of it. And uh, and the, But the thing here is exactly commitment because there was quite a lot of research showing that uh, only marriage, only really married couples got this boost and people who are simply cohabitating, so living together, very often in studies, they didn't show to have the same uh, benefits. And it was puzzling scientists, why would that be, right? And uh, so they finally discovered it was not really about you know, the paper or the document or the stamp, whatever, what a marriage gets. It was just about the commitment. So this kind of feeling that you're really in it together, that you are there until death was part. So if you are just living together with someone, but you do have this kind of commitment that you really know that, you know, you just don't believe in the institution, but you really 
are certain you are in it, then it's also the same quality. Just when you are, you know, together, but you are not really sure where it's going, then it may not be having the same benefits. Now, this is part of the big three that you mentioned in the book. One was committed relationships. Two is a large social network of friends. And three is a conscientious personality. Now, does it have to be large or can you just, if if you have just like a small circle of friends, but you regularly communicate with them? I mean, so here's the thing. So uh, it, when it comes to the really so close friends, so like having best friends, uh, it doesn't have, you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to be a party animal. That's for sure. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's just important to have, <laughs> it's just important to have these connections. And uh, I asked the same question to Professor Robin Dunbar at the University of Oxford, the one who, you know, invented the Dunbar number. And the dancing, right? Yeah, the synchronous yeah. dancing. <laughs> so, uh, so he told me that uh, if you feel, if you have just one friend, or you're really close friend, but you feel that this is all you need and you really feel that this person is there for you, that you can rely on them. And if you call in the middle of the night, you, they'll come and help you. And you are there for them as well. They know that you'll call in the middle of the night as well. Then it's all fine. But if you have one friend like this, but you still feel this is not enough, then it means that you personally need more. And maybe you need three or four or even five friends like that. People just differ on that way. But it's just as long as you feel that your needs are met in terms of having those people uh definitely zero is not the number so this is, this is always problematic <laughs> you have to have at least one uh but and this, so this is the most basic like the first circle of really close friends but then of course if you have more connections like with neighbors and colleagues it's this all adds to your health as well but it doesn't it never means that you are exactly supposed to be going to big parties and being in the center of attention it's not necessary at all you can have all these relationships one-on-one in small small groups it's perfectly fine but the more connected you are the the more people you know kind of you know around your in your neighborhood and so on this is important as well oh that's good and what is a conscientious personality so that basically means like keeping your desk tidy and paying your bills on time and being uh, and being showing up for meetings on time. And it may sound very boring, but there is so much research showing that this is one of the biggest predictors of health and generally success in life, but also health and lower mortality. And part of the reason is that people who are conscientious, they will, you know, go to the doctor when they're supposed to, they'll go for their dental checkups and they take their meds on time. Um, but there are also, even when scientists control for all of this, there is still a large chunk remaining, which suggests that part of it is actually biological. And uh, and before, you know, if you are not conscientious right now and before you start worrying, uh, actually it's a very, personality to a very large exchange can be changed in a very similar way that we can work on our muscles. So you do have a very small inherited part, but it's really not that important at all. And uh, with conscientiousness or just all other personality types and actually conscientiousness conscientiousness is one of the easier ones to change uh if you just fake it until you make it basically so make small changes every day just the way you exercise your abdominal muscles for example then you can actually become more conscientious so today pay one bill on time tomorrow clean your desk next day try not to be late somewhere just you know small small changes and because personality is basically just lots of different behaviors and thoughts accumulated day after day so uh, it can be worked on 
Yeah, it definitely can. I'm really big about volunteering. I think that is so awesome. And again, right now with COVID, it might be tougher, but I'm sure there's other ways people can do volunteer things, you know, and do things online. There was also, what was it called? The silver hair workers or silver hair jobs. Tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, that's a Japanese thing. So Japan, of course, is the longest lived uh, country. The people there long live the longest uh, uh, on earth right now. And uh, one thing when I... I I saw when I was visiting there when I was writing and researching growing young was that uh, they don't really retire in the same way we do in the West. So when people in Japan turn their retirement age, so I don't exactly know, 60 something, they, a lot of them don't just quit working they change their way they work so they will quit their usual jobs their careers i don't know in banking or whatever being a teacher and so on and so on so stressful jobs that they had before uh, and they will go to what they call silver hair employment agencies which are special agencies only for elderly people and uh, they will look for jobs that are easy uh, not demanding and uh, very often part-time, for example, being a gardener, uh, tending to public spaces or being a parking attendant or helping school children cross the road, uh, things like that. And um, so you see you know, lots of these elderly people in public spaces doing jobs like that. And they do it not for the money at all because they don't need it usually. They do it just because they want to feel needed and involved in the community and that they are giving something back. And uh, in Japan, a lot of researchers believe that this is one of the reasons why uh, they do live that long, because they exactly they feel needed and that they have purpose in life and that they are doing something, giving something back. That makes such a difference. I, I, I think that when, when you don't have that sense of purpose, that can be really challenging. And when you retire and you're suddenly gone from being super busy and then to like, okay, so at first, you know, maybe the first few weeks you're having some fun, relaxing, and then you're like, okay, now what? <laughs> That's how I'm feeling about it, you know, in the future. Uh, I interrupted you earlier when you mentioned Robert Dunbar. He talks about dancing and he did research into sync, sync, sync I can't even say this word. Is it synchronicity or syn synchrony? And it's about jogging together, singing in a choir, dancing uh, in synchrony. And, you know, I, I want to take an improv class and it's so funny because I feel like I have a natural knack for it just in some like funny videos and stuff I do. And then COVID hit, but <laughs> I'm planning eventually to do it because it just seems like su such a fun and great way to get to know people and also to feel part of a community and just to do something creative. Yeah, so synchrony is actually absolutely fascinating. So, uh, so what uh, Robin Dunbar and other scientists at the University of Oxford are uh, finding is that um, when we do things in synchrony with people, uh, we have we get even a bigger boost of the social hormones, especially endorphins, uh, than if we did those same things but not in synchrony. So, for example, take dancing. Right, if you dance with other people, but just everybody jigs in their own rhythm kind of thing, doing different moves, even to the same music, uh, you will feel connected and bonded and nice and you will get some boost of social hormones. But if you do the dance in perfect synchronies, as you do, for example, when you do line dancing or Macarena dancing uh, kind of thing, uh, then actually the boost of those endorphins can be double 
So, uh, which is really amazing. The same goes, for example, for doing sports like rowing or jogging or singing. Uh, if you acquire singing, is amazing for that as well. And those endorphins, as I've mentioned before, they're also natural painkillers. So, um, not only for bonding us together and feeling more closely connected. Uh, so, actually, when I was thinking about it, you know, for you were asking me before, what can we do for coronavirus? You know, maybe you can try singing together with people over Zoom. You know, why not? Maybe that sound silly fun. at first, but why not? You know. It's a, it can actually give you this extra boost of being connected and getting the social hormones going. So uh, if we cannot do things, uh, you know, the way we did previously, maybe this could work. Yeah, that is so true. Well, the book is absolutely fantastic. Growing Young, How Friendship, Optimism, and Kindness Can Help You Live to 100%. We did not talk about optimism. So let's talk about that before we end today. And you're always welcome here, Marta. You're just an absolute gem. Thank you so much. Uh, so optimism is definitely one of the big ones as well. So it can add you from anywhere from four to 10 years of life, which is obviously a lot. And, uh, and the research, you know, the research was done on so many different populations from Catholic nuns and to famous psychologists and even orangutans in the zoos. Uh, so the, <laughs> the researchers found out that the orangutans who are, have the most cheerful personality as evaluated by their zookeepers outlive other orangutans also by 10 years. So uh, there is something to this 10 years that keeps keeps showing up in research about optimism. So just having this kind of, you know, glasses always full, uh, helpful uh, outlook on life really, really helps. Oh, that's great. Well, this has been super fun. I'm so glad you came on the show. Everyone should get your book. Again, Growing Young, How Friendship, Optimism, and Kindness Can Help You Live to 100. How do we find out more about you and your fantastic work? So you can definitely find it on the book's website, which is www.growingyoungthebook.com. Uh, and you you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at mzaraska, as M-Z-A-R-A-S-K-A. Wonderful. Well, this has been great. I want to encourage everyone to get the book. Do these things. It might be hard during COVID, but it's even more important now because we, we are socially isolated and we want to make sure we maintain those connections. Also, please go and check out my brand new podcast, Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. We need to dismantle racism. We need to do it now. It should have been done years ago. So please help me in sunny days on this incredible journey. You can find it on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. And also please rate and review and subscribe to Talk Healthy today. Keep coming back. Find me on social media at Lisa Davis MPH and have a great day. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis, and if you enjoy my podcast, Talk Healthy Today, then I know you're going to enjoy my brand new podcast with the wonderful Sunny Days, whom you've heard on the program. And if you haven't, please check out the interviews that we've done here on Talk Healthy Today. It is called Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. There are going to be honest, unfiltered conversations. We're going to be talking about what's happening right now with race in this country, how important it is for us to be open, how to be allies, what it takes to be an ally, how racism and feelings of bias are in our culture and how they affect each and every one of us. It is so important. We need to change things. So please join me, join Sunny, join us on Active Allyship. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Thanks. Enjoy the show.